I'm jealous of this. I want one of these at Baltimore and Philadelphia. So, <laughs> Greetings from those two societies. Uh, recently in my work, I've been having a lot of conversations with humanists of all stripes. I just attended the American Humanist Association uh, annual meeting in uh, Philadelphia, and I've had, been having conversations with free thinkers and humanists and atheists and all different sorts of shades. And what I see growing, it's kind of exciting, it's an appreciation for ethical culture's ability to create holistic humanist experiences. And I think this is due primarily to our congregational format, unlike a lot of those other groups. And it's also thanks, however, to our ability to bring attention to aesthetics, to art, to beauty, to wonderful music, and to bring out the best using not just our head, but our hearts and our imagination. All humanists can celebrate this together, and that's a trend in Western art. Uh, I want to focus today a little bit on the slow emergence of the human form, overshadowed for centuries by this all-powerful God concept, but reborn in modern times, imbued with dignity and worth. Wrapped up in the renaissance of the, of the human is a freedom that I think is fundamental to art, democracy, and humanism. And we all have to work, I think, to make sure that that freedom of thought and expression flourishes. So that's all I'm talking about today. If that's enough, you can head off. But otherwise, I'm going to get into a little more detail. <laughs> but I'm going to start by sharing my own experience and love of art, which is sort of a fra framework for this, um, and a dedication to freedom of expression. Uh, I'm going to dedicate this uh, platform to my family, my wife and my children, who allowed me to enjoy this day as a special holiday. And to my mother, who was an artist herself, she always had art supplies in her house and made sure that we could be able to, to uh, create as we wish. She passed that on to my children, who are very creative. Uh, if you are the subject of this painting, or this etching, would you please raise your hand? Uh, oh, my son Justin. This is an etching my mother did of my son Justin in her art room, draw, painting a painting. So it's uh, many layers of artistic influence reflected in this, in this image. She died a few years back, but not until she left us with great memories and wonderful pieces of artwork that are all throughout our house, impressionistic landscapes and fanciful prints that she made. And thanks to her... My favorite class in school was art class. I remember modeling clay, even the smell, construction paper, and all those sorts of things. I got an A in scissor skills. I rem <laughs> I, I, whenever you need me, I'm there. Um, and I once created a Viking ship out of construction paper. Uh, it had a large, square, billowed sail. And my kindergarten teacher, who was clearly ignorant of both Vikings and artistic freedom took this and cut my square sail into a triangle so that it looked what sails looked like. So, I went home in tears over this infringement of artistic integrity. My mother charged down to the school and raised, raised hell. And I do always remember that. I remember how much she defended that freedom of expression and encouraged me to create whatever I want with whatever medium towards whatever results it led. And for me, that art and freedom are intertwined. It's probably why I doodled so much in class. I spent hours on creating dioramas, and I spent hours in high school in Mr. Potter's art class. I remember the turpentine smell and the play that I had there. 
It also reminded me of the time I spent in my mother's studio in downtown New Haven, where she was supported by a group of artists in a, in a, in a collective. And um, she was, uh, in, in particular, art meant a lot to her because she accompanied my father into an academic world that was a little intimidating for her. It was a world where her intellectual um, background didn't match. She always came back right in their faces saying, well, I'm a high school dropout because she went to art school in ninth grade. My father humored her art to a, to a degree, uh, but I loved the oil paintings and the prints she made that are on our house now, in our house, and they're next to some of another artist that she shared that studio with named Neil Welliver. Now, Neil, who died back in 2005, was a, a pretty strong influence in my life, primarily because, well, his children were some of my best friends growing up, but I spent a lot of time at their house on my own, away from my family, and he was a powerful male mentor. Uh, his passion, both his joy and his anger, burst out unexpectedly at times, and he was a counterbalance to my father, who was very reserved and rational. And they became good friends in part because of the old adage that opposites attract. So that's part of the theme of my talk today as well, the combination of head and heart, and how our lives and our humanist tradition flourish best when nourished, nourished both by our head and our heart, by reason and passion, by the rational and the ascetic. And humanism needs both of these in the 20th century. And however, the arts, which was a huge part of humanism for centuries, receded in the 20th century. Ethical culture leader Howard Radist makes some of these points in a 1989 article entitled The Humanist Imagination. He argues that the 20th century humanism was too narrowly rationalistic with insufficient ascetic characteristics that appealed to a broad human experience. He spoke of those, quote, who lived and worked in the humanist neighborhood, who were children of the Enlightenment, but who felt that there was something missing about a sense of inadequacy. There was an infatuation to a degree over technology and humanism in the post-World War II America that I think fed into sort of a hubris of scientism. And scientism is sort of the belief that science can answer all questions in human life and satisfy all human desires. Now, Howard Radis explains that this led some of us to ignore traditional humanist ideals of beauty and art and love and passion. He writes, quote, To be sure... Humanists in all guises had complained often and repeatedly about the limitations of reason, the need for emotion and passion, the absence of poetry and art. But as of 1989, when he wrote that article, there had been no, what he thought was necessary, no significant reconstruction of humanism. If humanism's to flourish today and into the future, I think it's got to reach more people. And if it's going to reach more people, it's got to reach more of us, not just our head, but our heart and our imagination. Psychologist Havelock Ellis puts it this way in his book, The Art of Life. Just as we need athletics to expand and harmonize the coarser, unused energies of the organism, so we need art and literature to expand and harmonize its finer energies, emotion being itself largely a muscular process. Art, from this point of view, is the athletics of the emotions. I think that's a neat idea. Humanist activist Fred Edwards knows this because he notes how the traditional religious institutions approached art. 
In his article, Humanism, Reason, and the Arts, Fred puts it this way. He says, A greater appreciation and use of the arts in liberal religion and amongst humanists would go a long way towards promoting not only joy and pleasure, but the expansion of the movement as well. Human beings are not mere intellects on legs. The traditional faiths have long known this and used it, and we can too. But at times, humanism resists arts and overemphasizes reason. This is part, partly due, I think, because reason limber, liberated many of us. Evidence, critical thinking, have freed us from ignorance and myth in pockets of Western culture. We're justifiably wary. I'm, just a, I, I'm wary of this fuzzy mystical thinking and woo-woo sensibility that you might find in a crystal boutique or a New Age religion. That's me, at least. Many people, though, in this room and elsewhere in ethical culture and humanism have been wounded by supernaturalists who manipulate us for their egos and their pocketbooks. So sometimes that can lead us to be skeptical of how art can manipulate emotions. And besides, I'm proud of our free-thought, skeptic, evidence-based heritage, and I don't want to base investment decisions on a creative impulse. We don't have to violate reason, though, when we embrace art and aesthetics. We can always return to the sound and sober footing of evidence and reason before making major life decisions. Unitarian Bill Murray understands this balance. Years ago, I spoke to him about his book, Reason and Reverence, a nice little book. I urge you to get it. In it, he describes the term spiritual as the suspension of ordinary experience and a transcendence of the self. Now, he points out that you don't need to turn to supernaturalism for such experiences. They occur often in the realm of art and imagination, which is one reason why that little meditation I offered you had this sort of weird little image of going into a painting. Now, I joined ethical culture because I wanted to do better at working for social justice. But I also learned that deeper insights and meaning in my life can strengthen me to do this work. All humanists, I believe, can bring out their best by accessing the power of emotion and art and beauty. So while many of you may not consider this power as being of religious characteristics, Theologian Paul Tillich did. He argued that such power is available to even us non-theists who reject supernaturalism. And in a talk at the New York Museum of Art, Tillich pointed us in the direction. He said, The artist brings to our senses and through them to our whole being something of the depth of our world and of ourselves, something of the mystery of being. When we're grasped by a work of art, Things appear to us which were unknown before, possibilities of being, unthought of powers, hidden in the depth of life, which take hold of us. Now, even if you don't like terms like the mystery of being or unthought of powers, art can enrich our lives, and it did so for me last January when I was gazing at Dutch masters at the Frick and the Met in New York. I felt like Bill Murray did, who said, upon viewing the paintings of Vermeer, quote, They gave me a feeling of serenity and peacefulness and a deep sense of the goodness of life. We could all use more of those, right? So in order to better appreciate what humanist approach to art is unique, I want to go back a couple of centuries to my favorite old rationalist, Plato. I guess I bring him up almost every talk. (laughs) Plato was very suspicious of art. 
The emotional appeal was, in his mind, a distraction from the only reliable guide to truth, which was reason. Nevertheless, the human impulse to create played a big part in medieval Christian culture, which merged Plato's dualistic metaphysics with Christian disdain for the material world. And this paradigm emphasized escaping the physical world, reaching for the divine. The purpose of all life and all art, the medieval church said, was to reach closer to the non-physical, perfect, eternal, divine realm of heaven. Sam Steele wrote in a, a book called The Impact of Humanism on Renaissance Art that the medieval mind viewed the artists as humble servants whose talent and ability were meant to honor God. Another writer described the flip side of that statement, that every human being was part, quote, of an ashamed, sinful community, lowly as a worm, shapeless as a pig. So they go on to describe the depraved state of humanity that was portrayed in medieval art, whether you see it on old Romanesque church or on Gothic cathedrals. And it was against this pessimistic background of humanity that new approaches to art emerged. It was a reaction against Platonic dualism that artistic naturalism began to grow. And this naturalism embraced the heretical idea that we were capable of finding beauty in this world and in ourselves. People began to believe that art should imitate the natural world and human behavior. And we turned from Plato to a more Aristotelian approach. Aristotle searched for knowledge in the material world. He thought art should copy life. And across canvases of Europe during the Renaissance grew a realism depicting common life, strengthening humanism, and creating modern Europe. Much of the new realism included our animal characteristics and our occasional depravity. I mean, you can just look at the work of Hieronymus Bosch or Peter Bruegel. See if I can get this to work. Other one? Ah, can't really see this, but you can go back to your books and look at this. This is a work by uh, Bosch. Yeah. Oh, the arrow. You mean the thing saying forward? Right. Oh, it's the artist in me. So, In Bosch and in Bruegel, you'll see mud, debauchery, grittiness, and humanity warts and all to a degree. But nevertheless, the human impulse to create played a part of the medieval Christian church, merging Plato's dualistic metaphysics, as I said. But the realism that came out in art also portrayed the good in humanity, and that's really my point today. Renaissance humanists deny that there was a gap between profane humanity and perfect God and embrace the mundane beauty of ordinary men and women. People, simple flesh and blood, became heroic. According to Corliss Lamont, this new form of art portrayed earthly enjoyments as a natural and wholesome part of the good life. What an idea. It declared that men and women possess intrinsic ethical and intellectual worth. Sounds like ethical culture. Now, much of the intellectual scaffolding that held up Renaissance art was built by the Italian, Italian scholar Petrarch, who was born in 1304. He developed a faith in humanity's potential for achievement and creativity. And he shifted our focus away from blind faith to a broader, more scientific quest. So over the 
a century later, Erasmus, some people call him the prince of the humanists, accelerated the Renaissance project. He emphasized the sheer exuberance of human existence. He fashioned a new conception of what it was to be human. The universal man, capable and brave, became the focal point of what was called the Humanist Academy. While still affected by Plato's metaphysical dualism, academy humanists appreciated that in order to reach towards the heavens, you had to have your feet firmly on the ground. This great Italian painters began to use Christian mythology, but used it to explain our lives. The restrictions on thinking began to be lifted, and subjects ignored for centuries, like grammar, rhetoric, poetry, art, and architecture, were revived. But it was the empirical sciences that most animated one of history's greatest artists. Epitomizing the humanist ideal that no area of study is off-limits, Leonardo da Vinci had an imagination that was second to none. He produced sketches and notes about things way ahead of his time, theories about plate tectonics, solar power, flying machines. And in his artwork, da Vinci applied new linear perspectives and theories of light to create more realistic images. And his work began to capture how the world actually is. He was expert in art and architecture, engineering, botany, and more. And he had few equals in his understanding of human anatomy. And he shined the Renaissance light on the human body that had been hidden by the church's blanket of ignorance for centuries. Ironically, it was the church actually that facilitated da Vinci's access to corpses that he did work on to study the human form at Florence's hospital, Santa Maria Nuova. This research generated thousands of drawings and prints and notes about the human form and body, and it was his meticulous empirical research and logical analysis that was very unusual for its time that was not only fundamental to his artwork but also fundamental to humanism. He knew the human body inside and out, literally. So he tore down, he and many others, the wall between art and science, resulting in iconic images such as the Vitruvian Man. I mean, most of you have seen this image. It's just this study, suddenly, of the human at the center of our experience. He also ran, loved individual unique people. Supposedly, da Vinci, when he was walking around, would, would um, uh, find people and just sit down there and sketch him, sketch them, Michelangelo. He did numerous studies trying to capture a whole wide range of expressions and gestures and emotions, such as rage and curiosity. And an example of da Vinci's more delicate side of, of human expression is, of course, the thing that every parent shows their kid at some point, the Mona Lisa. Let's start with the subtle ambiguity of her expression. What is she thinking? Is she self-assured, bemused? Is she smiling? These questions about the Mona Lisa reflect the broader point that it's valuable to explore the average human being, not just divine beings or Bible stories. Here and now deserves attention. This was the message also carried by Michelangelo. Even though he was a devout Christian, his name, nickname was Il Divino, the Divine One, and many of his works told of Bible stories. But he was also influenced by two years of study of the human form at the Humanist Academy. Even on the, the ceiling of the most sacred of places, the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's images of, of G, uh, Jesus and Mary were scandalously realistic. 
painted under the watch of his patrons, Pope Clement VII and Pope Paul III, Christ himself appears unusually human, young, clean-shaven, muscular. Mary appeared as a weary and devoted but very real mother. Most shockingly, elsewhere on this chapel, he painted them both naked. When the fresco depicting the second coming and the final judgment was completed, church officials raised hell, demanding that these images be altered or removed. Shortly before Michelangelo's death, the Council of Trent, in fact, voted to commission an apprentice to cover up artistically the naughty parts. (laughs) Michelangelo's most famous sculpture, that of David, uh, who slew Goliath, was also too human for some. Uh, Michelangelo's David was sort of older, mature, strong, and independent. Donatello's version of, of Michelangelo, of, of David, was also very human, maybe more, more sexual in nature, weight on one foot, somewhat turned. But both of them were strong enough to stand on their own without divine power or permission. Now, Of course, the art of Leonardo and Michelangelo would not have been possible had it not been for the wealthy Italian patrons from families like the Medicis. Thanks to a series of historical events, pockets of wealth began to grow outside of the church. The plague actually made labor precious and increased serfs to become a growing, better-played middle class. And pools of money began to fill the pockets of the wool merchants, leading to more and more wealth. But without the historic lineage of ecclesiastic or royal authority, these families wanted to display their power. What better way than to have famous artists paint your paintings? And this became the cash cow for the great Italian painters and a stimulus to a proliferation of artistic subjects that were more human than divine. So to a degree, patronage and commissions led to the secularization of art. A century later, and a few hundred miles to the north, the same thing was occurring in the Netherlands. The Dutch dominated the European banking industry at this time and could purchase their personal enshrinement in plaques and stained glass in churches and in portraits as well of the human form. Now, even though most of these portraits were about people of particular means, there was a whole new genre starting called tronies that I just found out in working on this talk. Tronies were just generic representations of average human beings, made from live models but just meant to represent human beings and certain emotions. It was this new opening up of the explanation of what, the exploration of what it would be to be human. Uh, Corliss Lamont says that Rembrandt's work gave, quote, a sense of the infinite power and possibilities of the human personality. Maybe this explains why Rembrandt, for example, did so many self-portraits. There were about 40 such paintings. Uh, This is a young one, about 30 etchings, numerous drawings. And he portrays himself in a wide variety of ages and moods and costumes. And perhaps he chose this as a subject because he was cheap. He didn't want to have to pay. He was very poor. I mean, he couldn't afford models all the time. It was certainly convenient. He didn't have to wait for the model to show up. But I think there were some deeper reasons that some writers talk about. He poured himself into these self-portraits in part because of freedom of expression. Because when he was painting for clients, he had to portray them as noble and powerful and strong. But when he painted himself, he could show the subtle emotions of sadness or uncertainty, grief or anger. 
Art historian Sean Kelly noted that for Rembrandt, self-portraits became an outlet for feelings and ideas concerning the nature of human existence, which found no satisfactory channel elsewhere. But a second reason why I think he used himself as a topic was that it was like a, a biography. Over 40 years of painting, he watched himself grow and told his life story. He's incredibly open and honest about who he is. They're not very handsome all the time. Reportedly, when looking at some later portraits of his life and then back at a mirror, Rembrandt commented that he came, quote, to look for myself and recognize in a mirror myself. What have I found? Death painted, I see. Death painted, I see. Warts and all. This is not an image, however, of a damned sinful beast not worthy of God's grace, but of an ordinary human being full of simple dignity. And this simple dignity Rembrandt gave to every brushstroke of his paintings. Independent of his subject's social class or prestige, Rembrandt invites the viewer to greet each subject like a human being, to share their thoughts and their feelings their trials and their tribulations. And he opens up the inner life of the human subject through a simple glance, just a flash of a moment. Vermeer does this as well, and that's at least how I felt last winter when I went up to the Frick and turned the corner to see for the first time a girl with a pearl earring. Now, this was after a big family buildup for a trip to New York, primarily to see this one work, And I was worried that I was going to be disappointed, but I wasn't when I turned that corner and first saw the image greeting me from this canvas. It was truly stunning. It was like a sudden, personal, and intimate encounter. This image was popularized by Tracy Chevalier's book of the same name, as well as the 2003 motion picture starring Scarlett Johansson and Colin Firth. The girl with a pearl earring became an almost iconic image about 10 years ago. It was so when my daughter Maya dressed as this girl for Halloween, (laughs) replicating the exact style and shade and tone, intimate, meaningful glance. (laughs) She became the poster girl of the Tacoma Voice magazine. She made a striking image peering through a picture frame that my son Sean found in a dumpster a couple of weeks before this time. (laughs) The The frame was too heavy, So I offered to carry it, being the ham that I am. I threw on my father's academic robe and a silly velvet hat that my mother gave me, and we walked around Tacoma Park shouting, Vermeer for sale, Vermeer for sale. (laughs) What was so cool about it was the, the crowds literally parted and jaws dropped. She won first prize. But one reason, it was like we were channeling what had become an iconic image. We had caught this wave and the power of a simple human glance became clear. But more than anything, it was play. It was play. It was fun. Now, my bigger point here is through the ebbs and the flows of the Reformation and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, the human being emerged as beautiful and real. Artists demonstrated the worth and dignity and power of both average subject and artist. As I entered one room of the Met, I remember there were eight Rembrandt portraits. And it was like I had walked into a cocktail party and they all turned to greet me. It, it, was, it was eerie. It sort of reminded me of Hogwarts. Where it, right? All the paintings that the, the subjects literally greet you and run around from one to another. Uh, 
this, this is perhaps this emergence of the human in art is part and parcel of this humanism that you see growing. Because I think it blurs the distinction between the person and the image and is an inevitable result of the incorporation of ourselves in our art. Now, another creative blurring of this distinction between image and body is brought to us with a, without supernatural baggage by a, a young artist named Alexa Mead. I urge you to, to check out her work online. I apologize to my son for putting him up on the screen. She moved out to California, but not until she had made this work of art of my son, Sean. Now, if you look at it, it looks like a painting. But in fact, it's an untouched photograph of Sean with paint applied directly to his body. So there's no manipulation of the photograph. It is a photograph of him with paint on him. It was not, it was, it was like a, a reverse trompe l'oeil. It was not a painting made to look like a real object, but a real object made to look like a painting. Now such play is wonderfully creative, and it further mingles the human and the image, and it defies convention. And why not? That's part of how humanism affected art. It defied convention. Uh, to ease his... Uh, I'll stay on that one there. <laughs> now, during the Renaissance, when this humanism began to come out in art, blasphemy and scandal surrounded the various artists of the Italy who exposed emotions and, and genitals occasionally. Um, Art was once made only to praise God and to bring us closer to heaven. But through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, it brought us closer to ourselves. It didn't bring us closer to ourselves, however, by insisting on a particular humanist approach to art. And that's very important. While the church may have insisted that all culture, including art, had to only be to praise and honor God, humanists should not and cannot make the same opposite claim. Art's created for us and by us, and if it's to bring us closer to an understanding of what it's to be human, it should not make objective claims about art. Because I believe art is deeply personal and human and unique and subjective, to a degree reflecting the maxim that there's no disputing tastes. Peter Gay, author of The Enlightenment, said that this was the conclusion of all those who inherited the aesthetic genius of da Vinci and Michelangelo and Rembrandt and Vermeer, Voltaire insisted that beauty was relative, dependent on the environment and the individual. Immanuel Kant said, quote, the judgment of taste cannot be anything but subjective. Edmund Burke denied objective views of art. Even Joshua Reynolds, the founder of the Royal Academy of Art, insisted that the end of art is, quote, to produce a pleasing effect on the mind. These thinkers, though, all agreed that human creation is not a divine gift or just a mechanical result of a physical universe. Art's about the human condition and human freedom. That doesn't mean that humanist art should expel the religious from the art world. Just the opposite. Art should be free and creative of expression of secular and religious nature. No one paradigm should dominate. And this diversity, I think, reflects a democratic tendency important to both the freedom of expression and to humanism at large. Again, Fred Edwards made a similar argument in his article, Humanism, Reason, and the Arts. He says, We need not then attempt to lay out a specific humanistic theory of aesthetics. We need an attempt to dictate in the fashion of Plato the proper details, expression, and message of art. We need only provide the atmosphere of a humanist society. 
a society of freedom, compassion, and rationality, and let matters of art take care of themselves. Whatever flowers up will many times be to the humanist's liking. Now, earlier in my talk, I discussed how important it was for us deeply rationalist humanists to dip into our humanist heritage for inspiration. And there's no formula for that, no rational set of instructions. Great art requires that we get out of our head and into our heart and our imagination. And when we explore the uncharted and mysterious and personal and subjective, power comes to us. If I'm right in saying that reason and creativity are both fundamental for our future, humanism is on the right path in making room for the arts. So we need to support and explore the arts and freedom of expression in our own lives and in the public sphere. We have to resist the intolerant and narrow-minded concerns and censors who strive to smother creativity and stifle the national endowment for the arts. Arts for the people, by the people, of the people. Let's everybody keep humanizing art Let it flower freely, and most of all, don't let your grandchildren or your children be harassed by cruel kindergarten art critics. Thank you very much. (laughs) 